This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCute, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. Konstantinos Karastravakis. I said that completely wrong, and he he's looking at me. Known to his friends as Costa, it's a lot easier to say. Tells his new story in his new book with great honesty and courage. He charts his course through a childhood of identity confusion, growing up Greek and gay in Johannesburg. He built a glamorous life of parties, business triumphs, and money, but crashed into the devastation of a crystal meth addiction. The gift of desperation arrived to propel him towards a life without drugs and alcohol. He slowly dragged himself onto a path of recovery. This is his story. I don't want to give too much away. He's literally written a book and he's in the Good Things Guy studio to tell us a little bit more about his life story. Costa, welcome. Thank you very much for having me here. Okay, first of all, say your name because I did butcher it, right? You, you butchered it, but you did a good job, actually. It's Costa Karastavrakis. That's how I'm known. Costa Karastavrakis. Which is, thank you for explaining that. I'm going to practice during the show, and at the end of the show, I'll try and say it again. Um, I remember my first radio interview ever. It was about five years ago, and the legendary John Robbie had me in studio. It was the first radio interview I'd ever been on. And I was only on for like 45 seconds, but he got my surname wrong about 11 times. So I, I get it, right? Wow. It's, we've, got, we've got these long indigenous names, and it's a little bit different for others to pronounce. You've written this book. I actually knew of you before you wrote the book. Yes. We travel in the same circles. Yes. So I have known you. I never knew that you were going through hell. I actually went through hell before I met you. Okay. Yes. I met you when I, I've been in recovery now for over 13 years. Uh-huh. So, so yeah, no, a lot of people when they see me say, were you using when I knew you? Because you or? would never know, right? You would know. The me today to the me from 14 years ago is very different. I wasn't as available I wasn't as present for relationships, friendships, and perhaps I wasn't even that nice to be around. It's a very self-absorbing um, addiction, drug addiction. It's self-absorbing. It's uh, vacuous. It doesn't bring out the best in anyone. I mean, you know this because you've lived it, but it's a revelation for me to hear that from somebody else. Where did the journey start? So on the, on the cover of your book, it says from meth to marathons. So let's talk about where, where the story starts. I grew up in Johannesburg. You're Greek and you're gay. You're trying to find yourself. Yeah. I can relate to not being Greek, but being born in Johannesburg and gay. What was that like being in this world where you're just a little bit different? Well, it was a lot different. You know, I went to primary school in the 70s. I'm 49. So it's, um, you know, the early 80s when I went to high school was a tough time. A lot of bullying started in primary school. And when you get bullied when you're six or seven years old, those scars run very deep. And I, for who I was, um, the way I was made up, the way I have a makeup, I internalized a lot of emotion. I didn't express emotion. While I come from a home that is loving, where there is openness, we're a big noisy Greek family and uh, where I got heard. But on the outside world, I wasn't being heard and I wasn't being accepted. So I took on some like incorrect messaging that it was wrong and it was I was defective and it was wrong to be me. So I never really asked for help. I went into a confused world of my own. A dark, lonely, and really sad world as a as a youngster, as a very young primary school guy, who then came out of his shell in high school, around about the time I started drinking, 
which was um, when I was 12. Good grief. Mm, that was the first time I got drunk. You know, wow. and and it wasn't something I sought I, out. I, sorry, I say wow, but I had my first drink when I was like 12 or 13 as well. So, I, I mean, that's not, I, I wasn't putting you in a space there. Like no. we do, we do experiments at that age. I got blind drunk. So I had four glasses of the sparkling wine and I had the second glass because the first glass made me feel good and I really liked it. It made me feel numb. It switched off a sadness and it turned on a, a numbness. I just didn't want to feel. And then I had third, and then the fourth glass was where I, you know, I was this little 40 kilo, 12 year old skinny little boy who obviously passed out, vomiting, etc., etc. And where do you remember where you were? Yes, at my friend Alan's bar mitzvah. Yep. <laughs> my sister nursed me back to. To health, um, thank God my parents weren't home at the time. We hid it from them. And it was the first time I ever had coffee. She made me, she was like, well, she heard people talk that if people got drunk, they needed cold showers and, and black coffee. So she threw me in the shower, <laughs> cold, and uh, served me black coffee. And uh, hung over the next day at 12, I thought, well, maybe I could do this again. And it was a few months before I did it again. But then I only knew one thing. As soon as I would touch it, I wanted to get drunk. Mm-hmm. I never had, and I've never been able to have one glass um, because a neural pathway opens up in my body that says, oh, I know this. I like this. This works. I now feel like I'm not feeling. And that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to feel. Um, it was tough. It was hard being me, but it was easy deflecting. And you could deflect only so much. And then you needed, I needed some help. And alcohol was my primary go-to drug. So that was the start, right? The alcohol was the, the start of the journey. But during that, you were still getting through high school. You were still um, forging a path in life and starting your new chapters as an adult. Yep. But always on the side of that, there was drinking that was sort of numbing whatever you were going through. Well, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm a really high-functioning guy. I really wanted to do well with my life. I, I knew I had some assets. And in spite of what was going on, I had this like drive and determination. But I was running on two fronts. The one front, which was a mask that was trying to be the best I could be, but not being real. And um, the other side was, well, I don't know who I am. I'm not ex being who I think I am isn't accepted. Let me just numb it out. So trying to trying to exist on both levels is possible for a while, but then it gets harder and harder. And what you need is you need more. You either need an awakening of, gee, this is who I am. This is the mess I'm making. This is who I want to be, um, and exposing myself, or you just keep drinking more or doing more drugs. Before we get into the drugs, because there mm. was a there was a leap from the one to the other. Mm. What had you come out? What age did you come out at? So here's the interesting part. I came out at age 22. So I literally came out the closet. Um, well, I arrived at work. I had a top job in Durban. I arrived at work drunk. My boss put me in touch with HR department. They put me in touch with a therapist. I told them I was gay. It was time to come out. I told my parents first, then my sister, then my friends and my family and everybody. And it was like, okay, well, I'm done. I've told the world I'm gay, it's over, we can live. But it's not as easy as that. For me, it wasn't as easy as that. There is an underlying processing that has to happen alongside coming out. And the biggest thing was shame and exposing shame. And the other thing was trauma. Um, I had a, a kidnapping stroke. Um, 
hijacking scenario when I was at varsity and I was taken in my car on a joyride with uh, hijackers and left on the side of the highway outside the townships. And th- I mean, that that is a harrowing experience that, that also needs to be dealt with that I didn't deal with. So there's a whole lot of trauma and a whole lot of pain that I never looked at. I just came out the closet thinking that would ho- that would fix everything, but it didn't. I needed more process work and I wasn't ready to do that. I thought I'd done enough. It was time to party and have some fun with this new gay life of mine. I, I, I mean, I can, I can put myself in the same shoes that um, when I came out, I was about 17. It was the end of uh, my matric year. And I love what you said about it. You feel like it's that moment that you just do it and then it's done and the curtains are drawn and you've, you can just move on. But in actual fact, you're starting a whole new life as a new you. Because for so long, I hid who I was. I didn't want people to know. At school, I was always trying to be a little bit more butch. And and when I did come out, it was this whole new experience of me being a new me and understanding who that new me was. So, yeah, I can I can relate to, to that. You know, with years, and not only gay people, I'm talking anybody who's hiding something. You know, you develop on many fronts, but then you're stunted in other parts of my, I was stunted in other parts of my life that now needed to catch up. So, you know, my emotional maturity, my adult maturity is many years behind my peers. And I know that. And I've given myself a break about that because while everybody else was dealing with what normal teenagers deal with or what people in their twenties deal with, I'm a little bit behind the curve. The drugs, because that's obviously a big part of the book and a big Mm -hmm. part of your life story. When were you first introduced I'd always known drugs were around. Everybody knew not to offer Costa. I was very vocal around not using drugs. I was super, super scared of them. They really, really terrified me. What was the fear? The fear was I knew they would work and I would love them. I knew it. It was, it was I, I had what I used to say, I have an addictive personality. Keep them away from me. And I managed to stay away from them. But a series of traumas and a series of events in my late 20s led me to a a failed relationship as well where I had lots of, it was a perfect storm, a failed relationship, unprocessed uh, trauma from an assault and rape, then a business that I'd sold and had lots of money. So here I was, lots of money, lots of free time and lots of pain. And I I remember I, I broke up with my ex on a Thursday and then that Friday night for the first time ever I was offered cat a powder that i'd never put up my nose and i was like right let's go it's time i'm here i'm breaking out this is a new me um i felt reckless and um reckless and i also felt like i could handle anything but maybe actually what i did was i needed something you needed the numbness exactly that and i took it and i had it and i really really loved it Mm. i said something that a lot of addicts say when they first use their drug of choice which for me, it was hard drugs. Um, it started with cats. But you say, I said to myself after I had it, where have you been all my life? I was like, this. This is it. This is what I've been looking for. Sure. Oh. Mm. Um, sorry, there was, you were, how old at that time? I was 30, early 30s, sorry. Early 30s. Yep. And from there, it just sort of snowballed. Well, here's, here's the thing. A lot of people use drugs in, you know, in their teens and a lot of adults think they're immune. And, you know, it's, I mean, I'm 30, I can handle it. Well, I tried and I couldn't handle it. And um, I tried them all from uh, cat to crack, cocaine, um, 
gratefully I only used crack once. It was the most horrifying experience that downer. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and and did it did it very quickly become an everyday thing? I mean, it started out as a Friday. Uh, when was the next time? Saturday or well, was it a week from then? So so it started out one week a month over three months, let's say, and then every weekend, just Fridays and Saturdays, and then of course it's my trick was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then it goes into Sunday, and two years later, my last binge was a five day binge. Started oh my on gosh. started on Wednesday night. No sleep, no food, nothing until mo- the following Monday morning. It's just a lot to take in. Um, you, during that time, were you still working? So, again, I had, I had a lot of my own money, which actually entitled me, I thought, to using more drugs. Because I'm not using anybody's money. I'm not stealing from anyone. I'm doing exactly as I please. But I did have uh, just very – I'd sold my business which was a clothing business, and I took on some consulting work, which allowed me to work flexi time, flexi hours, when I was sober, when I had a clear head, otherwise I wasn't at work. So it was very flexible, which was nice. And it didn't tax me too much. You know, it started off with some brain work, some strategy work, and then by the, by the time I nearly finished, I was actually just doing advertising sales, which was a lot easier than writing presentations and strategy. But I would spend some time at work, and the rest of the time, finding ways and means to use more drugs. Yeah, I don't want to give it too much away because you have written a book. And we want people to, to buy the book and read the book. But there was obviously this tipping point, And you speak about the last binge, which was five days, mm. um, which my brain can't even conceive, not eating or sleeping for five days. To give you an idea, I sleep like nine hours a night generally, and I eat all day. But in this circumstance, it's harrowing to think that you would allow – or not. I don't know if you would allow, because I don't know if it's a choice. The drugs are sort of making the choice for you. But you're putting your body through that stress, and and there must have been some sort of tipping point where something changed. It's What changed for me was the feeling of pain was so big. There was so much pain. And what did they say? The, the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the same. It was so painful that when you take crystal meth, crystal meth is results in psychosis. I was seeing things that weren't there. Some very, very, very disturbing things that I would never have even thought would exist. Like when you're on the drug or when you're you're off the drug? That's the thing. Or was it all the time? Well, when you're on the drug, it it feeds you some nice stories and some nice pictures. um, Sometimes good, sometimes bad. And when you're off the drug, a few days later, you can go have a psychosis. So you haven't had drugs for five days. And the one time I hadn't had crystal meth for a week. And I was seeing things that weren't there. Um, there's a fear. And it, it's not fear. I call it horror. It was a horror of what I was seeing and feeling. And the meth takes over. So I was seeing myself lie, cheat, do things that I normally wouldn't do. And the horror was that I couldn't stop myself. I would watch myself do things that I couldn't stop myself from doing. Um and then there's the crystal meth downer that is, it's, uh, I call it the hole in my soul. It is the darkest place I've ever been. It's a downer where you would rather be dead than feel this. Um, it's really, really horrific. I can understand how some people um, end their lives by with what they feel. It only knows destruction, and it nearly took me out. Oh, so... Um Flip, man, I'm excited to get stuck into your book and to really dive deep. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite books is um, by an author called James Frey. 
a million little pieces. And in his book, I read it when I was at Varsity. I was actually, I was working for a clothing store, mm-hmm. designer Italian clothing store in Eastgate, and I was studying at night. And I just spent all my time indulging in this book because he speaks about the same scary moments that you do. And I think... If I remember the story correctly, Oprah Winfrey chose his book as like her book of the month or whatever that was. And then someone along the way who he had mentioned in the book said that none of it was true or that something wasn't true. Some of it wasn't true. Yeah. So he got called back onto the show to explain himself. And I remember I also loved Oprah at the time. And um, one of the greatest things he said is that was my truth. So those things that I was going through when I was at the dentist and it felt like he didn't give me any pain medication or whatever it was written in the book, Mm. that was my truth because those were my horrors. Mm. And funny enough, we're talking 18 years later, a movie's coming out in 2020 Mm, with a million little pieces Mm. of James Fry. I'm very excited to watch it. So your story, I I mean, your tipping point came and and then what? Did you go into the 12-step program? What is the fix fix to this? Well… I knew I needed to do not something. I knew I needed to do everything in my power. I was so desperate to never feel that way again. I put up my hand finally and asked for help. And a world of resources opened up and I chose a 12-step recovery program. I never went to rehab. I just went from one meeting to the next, white-knuckling at least my first six months from one meeting to the next, working in between and just trying everything in my power, doing everything they told me to do, taking every suggestion, throwing my life at it because I wanted my life back. And I knew what would happen. Um, the most annoying thing somebody said to me, and it was so true, is the one thing has to change and that's everything. Um, Did you have a group of friends around you while you were going through this this drug chapter? Were there people that were part of it? So I would I had my using friends who vanished the day I stopped using drugs. Oh my gosh! Vanished. And isn't isn't that the story? You know, I've never seen any of them again. No, no, no. It's the most frightening thing. I've, I, I, maybe I made them up, but I ne- I've never <laughs> seen them again. Perhaps they have also cleaned up or moved to other countries, but I don't see them anymore. But I did maintain my close friends and my my other circle. But then again, I wouldn't see as much of them, especially in the last two years. I came clean with everybody. Um, I put my hand up and asked for help. And was that a tough thing to do? No, not when you're in so much pain. Because you knew you needed it. I was in so much pain. Um, other people's judgment of me was none of my business. I couldn't care because my reality was so horrible. Uh, you know, if somebody was going to judge me for trying to get off drugs, you know, I, didn't, I had no time or space or energy for them. Um, I, I, you know, in that way, I got self-centered. I was like, well, whatever's in the way of my recovery has to go. So I didn't go out for a year. I think it took me about three years before I walked into a, a liquor store to buy champagne for a friend's birthday. I, to this day, if, you, if we're at a bar and you ask me to hold your drink, I won't hold it. I, I have non-negotiables. You know, I won't kiss you if you've had a drink. Rinse your mouth out or have some gum, and then maybe. Um, so, those are things that I mean, because it's a life and death situation, the drugs will kill me. I'm allergic to them. Um, so, uh, yeah, applying myself to that with some therapy as well. Um, I also went to see a psychiatrist. I was finally diagnosed with a very severe underlying depression that had followed me since a kid and uh, put, on, put on a certain medication that um, I. I feel has given me my life back. I feel like you're getting the real Costa that had some chemical imbalance that needed adjusting. 
and I put my recovery as the number one priority in my life. I lost a few friends over it. I, I eventually lost a boyfriend over it. It's just what had to happen for me to get to the best version of me. Costa, you, um, the, the presence that you give off and the type of person you are today who is the real you is so calm and so in the moment. And um, I mean, I, my, my listeners won't know this, but I kept him waiting like 40 minutes. We had a bit of a technical issue mm. in the studio. And I walked outside. I'm like, I'm so sorry. We've just got to do two more minutes. And you just looked at me and you were like, no problem. It's all, it's all okay. It's, um, you know, the recovery program I'm part of is a gateway to a spiritual life. That's what it is. And it's all about spirit. You replace drugs with spirit. I arrived, the grace of spirit got me into recovery, but I, my discipline kept me coming back. It's an inside job. It's not the only person, it's the only thing, it's not the only thing that's working in my life. And when I am spiritually connected, I'm as calm as you saw me this morning. Had you seen me yesterday in traffic, you wouldn't have gotten the spiritually connected Costa. I'm real, okay? Yeah. I'm not always like that. I'm not always as accommodating. But the progress is there. Not the perfection, but the progress. Um, I need to ask you about writing a book. And I've had a lot of authors uh, that come on the show that uh, come and divulge what that whole experience is like. Or, you know, some of our listeners might be sitting there going, I have a damn good story to tell. I'm going to write a book one day. Um, first of all, was it cathartic to have to go through all of this again? And secondly, what was the process like? Firstly, the catharsis. Um, it Unfortunately for me, I wrote the book and... I only processed after what I'd written. I'm like that. I compartmentalize things. And uh, a few months or two months later, I fell apart. It all caught up with me. And this year has been particularly difficult in putting it back together. Um, the pain still comes up. Um, and, and I look at it and pass it on. And hopefully passing the message on helps me deal with the pain. It's not as easy as it sounds, but here I go again. I try and not cry in an interview. It never works. It never <laughs> works. I was doing so well until now. But um, the writing process itself was so much fun. Um, I'd had these stories. I mean, I know my life. I know my stories. When you're writing about yourself, it's, it's a lot of fun. And what was important for me was putting together my story in a way that I wanted to see it. And I wanted to reframe my story and I wanted to look at it. I wanted to look at the humor in it. I wanted to look at the madness, the chaos and the pain all in one. I didn't want a mis misery memoir. And I find myself very funny. Uh, when I'm alone, I really crack myself up and I, I've done some stand-up comedy before. I've written some comedy before. And I just applied all of that stuff to my book and to my writing. And I found the humor in my life. And it's everywhere from my upbringing to, I mean, you can't make some of the stuff up that happened to me or that I, that goes on in my head. I have a quirk. I have a quirk every day. And it was so much fun writing about myself and looking at myself and saying, gee, you're a hot mess, but you're a funny hot mess. <laughs> and you're an interesting hot mess. And... And what was lovely is I had no audience in mind. I was writing for myself and I sat down and I joined a writer's group and I banged out the book in nine weeks. Wow. Yeah. I, I, and I, while I was working, I just, when the story wants to come out, it, it, it finally will. just comes out. It will. And that was the first draft. I rewrote the book then twice. 
till this version that you see that's printed. That went to the editor finally. But I had to write it three times. So it's, it's definitely a labor of love. But uh, something that I highly recommend to anyone. What was great is I'm not a writer. So I haven't written before. I don't, didn't have an audience in mind. It wasn't about the end product of being published. It was just about writing a book, which is probably the best way to write a book because I had no expectations. And with no expectations and no pressure on me, it actually came out quite well. It got me two publishing offers because I, it just came out so honestly and so real. And I think they could see that. And I hope the readers can also see and sense that. You speak about not having an audience, but I think now maybe you do. And, and what sort of audience, who, who are the people that are buying the book, reading the book and getting back to you? Uh, it, it amazes me who buys the book and who actually feeds back to me. There's obviously, um, it resonates a lot with guys who are very similar to me. I get a lot of emails from guys who came out the closet, etc., etc., etc. And then I get mails from, funny enough, mostly men, guys who are top of their game, business oaks, uh, first team rugby, etc., etc., and sending me this long email about, you know, I hid how I was bullied at school. Um, it's something I've never processed with. Thank you for opening it up. It makes me angry. Um, it makes me this, makes me that. There's a whole lot of um, other people. So Pabi Molloy, who gave me a beautiful shout on the cover of my book, coined a phrase, othering. In other words, we all feel other than at some point in our lives. And I'm also getting a lot of people saying, I was the little overweight kid. I was the guy who failed my trick. I was the woman who didn't get the promotion. And we'd all have a sense of shame. And for me, it's resonating with a lot of people who want to look at their shame. And my book is all about shame, actually. It's about the shame I went through, how I look at it, how I identify with it. It's about handing back the shame. And it's also about finding the humor in the shame because it's helped me make my life light again. So, yeah, a lot of people who feel other than are reading this book and saying, you know, I felt the same way, even though I'm a woman, even though I'm, I'm a granny or whatever, but I've, I have felt the same. And they say addiction is a shame-based disease. Shame is the gateway drug to addiction. Sure. That's what I know for sure. And the more we perpetuate shame in others, the more pain there'll be in their lives. And, um, you know, this book is hopefully changing some hearts as well, you know, for people to say, perhaps I can be a little kinder on some people other than me. With social media today and with people who are just looking for the bad, here I am with the good things, guy. Thank God there's people like you doing stuff, which is saying just let's look at the good in people. Let's just, above all, be kind. And if you can't be kind, shut up. <laughs> um, I love the word other than or the, or the statements or, or, or other than. Mm. And um, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that somewhere. I think it's important because the reality is, I believe, sitting here, that we are all other than. No one is settled and no one feels confident all the time mm -hmm. there's there's some points in everybody's lives where they have to be brave and where they have to deal with huge monsters and sometimes those monsters are inside our own heads and i think that um i believe and uh, i'm proof that if we can be kinder we can i change my world by being kind so if we can do it then be kinder for everybody um i'm going to ask you the worst 
question in any interview that always gets asked. What's next? Because now you've written a book and you're still in recovery because you'll always be in recovery. And like you said, you've put many parameters in place because you know what that next step would lead to if it had to get there. But what is next? Well, there's two things. Is the there a sequel? Well, this is the first half of the book, actually. Aha. My publisher cuts it in half. And the second half is more of a how-to, more of a health book of sorts, etc. And there's a third book that I've started writing around trauma. Um, okay. It's a very serious book. It will be a serious read. It'll be for a very small audience. Um, but it will be around rape, dealing with rape, coming to terms with it, and um, handing back that shame. So that is something I I am getting the emotional tools slowly to to keep writing. It's a very tough one to write, um, and I stop and start it many times, but it will come out. But I love talking. I love speaking. What's next for me is talks and a speaking career. I've started doing some talks. Um, I do talks at some schools, some companies, etc. I want my message to go out as far and wide as possible. So that is the core of my purpose. It's so nice to find a purpose and to live it easily. That is what's next. A purpose-driven life mm. um, is what we're all searching for. It's been amazing having you on the Good Things Guy podcast. If people want to buy your book, if they want to, let's first, if they want to buy your book, where do they get it? It's everywhere. So it's at all major bookstores. And it's called I Am Costa, which we're all thankful for because his name, I couldn't even start <laughs> at the beginning of this. Car I'm going to try this. Let me try. Karastavrakas. Yes. Yes. Did it. Nailed I it. did it. I did it. Now, now I can go eat um, crunchy lamb chops because that's what the Greeks do. Yes. Um, it's, I love the food. That's my favorite. So uh, in all the bookstores, you're looking for I Am Costa. It is a beautiful book. Um, I'm excited. It's December time. I'm going to put this in my list of reads to do. And if people want to get in touch, because I find uh, very often when someone hears a story on the podcast, they generally... If it resonates and if they even just want to send them a message going, I absolutely love your vulnerability and I love that you've shared the story, not just on air, but in paper. Um, where do they get hold of you? So um, my website is thisiscosta.com or my email address costa at thisiscosta.com or Instagram is always good. Costa Johannesburg. You can slide into his DMs. Yes, Costa <laughs> Johannesburg. Um, follow me. I'll follow you back. Let me know what you think of the book or let me know if I can put you in touch with the right people. I'm not a professional. I don't have any professional experience. I'm a storyteller, but I always have an ear to listen to what anybody needs or has to say. Amazing, amazing, amazing. You are an incredibly inspirational person, and I want to thank you for sharing your story so openly. There's a lot of people that are dealing with the same demons as you. And it's just beautiful to know that there's hope at the end of the tunnel. So thank you. Thank I'm you. going to put all those links at the bottom of the, the podcast as well. So you'll be able to get it there. Thank you for continuing to support Good Things Guy podcast. We, we keep featuring in the top five on the iTunes Apple charts, which is fantastic. Thank you for that. And um, if you haven't subscribed, we've got like 30 or 40 or 50 different shows of all amazing people doing incredible things. So go have a listen to those as well. That's me. This is the Good Things Guy podcast. Wishing you only good things. I'm Brent Lindeke, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy, and you've been listening to Good Things Guy, a jackpot podcast. For more episodes or to subscribe, rate, or review my podcast, go to iTunes, Iona FM, or Google Podcasts. Be kinder than necessary to yourself and each other. Thanks, and only good things.